Hi, welcome to More Like the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, reform, and advocacy. And I'm your host, Vinkidia Gardner. Thank you for joining us today. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about reentry in the context of rural communities um, and the challenges that rural community uh, residents have post-incarceration and even just recommendations and solutions that we could have to better support these individuals in these communities. So for us to talk about this today, I have a guest with us named Dr. Kyle Ward. And Dr. Ward is an associate professor and graduate program coordinator in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Northern Colorado, um, where he has been a faculty member since 2015. And just to give you a little information about his background, he received his uh, Master's of Arts in Forensic Psychology from John Jay College of Criminal Justice and his PhD in Criminology from Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Um, and his research interests include prison and jail reentry, rural criminology, risk assessment, the impact of marijuana legalization, and evidence-based policies and practices. So I really want to thank Dr. Ward for coming on to More Life to share his expertise, his experience, um, and his knowledge about these particular areas. So thank you, Dr. Ward. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Well, uh, like I said, it's always a pleasure to have a guest on to talk about new topics. This is not an area that I am particularly, I have like a lot of depth of information in. I know the foundation of things. Um, so that's kind of what we're going to be getting into today. Uh, but before we get into like our actual topic, I always like to talk to people about how they became interested in reentry and what kind of led them here. Everybody has a different pathway to how they got to this particular interest. Do you care to share a little bit about yours? Yeah, of course. So um, I am originally from the Philadelphia suburbs and uh, I went to school in a kind of small town in central Pennsylvania, uh, Lebanon Valley College and out near Hershey, Harrisburg area, um, which was a rural area. And if you were to ask me, maybe when I was in my late teens, what I wanted to do when I grew up, I probably would have said, well, first, I don't know. But second, uh, maybe law enforcement, because um, that seemed I, I majored in criminal justice and then found the field of psychology midway through my academics and uh, really had was drawn to it. So I uh, added, added that as a double major. And I had a mentor in my undergrad who um, always said, if you have the opportunity to volunteer in the criminal justice system, that's a system that needs people, that's understaffed, underpaid, with high need. Uh, so over the summers, I would go, if I, if I could, to volunteer um, in places in Philadelphia. Um, one summer, I volunteered as a court advocate for uh, victims of violent crimes in the preliminary trial process. Um, I found that fascinating, uh, but also realized that I didn't want to go into law school after that. Uh, and then after, after uh, summer after that, I interned for a um, uh, mental health agency uh, that worked with uh, with forensic populations. So I got had my first experience kind of going into jails, mental health facilities, and residential uh, treatment communities for people that have forensic backgrounds. And I found that very fascinating. I got to meet um, really interesting people, and uh, both from a worker side, but also from a client side, and um, really found that rewarding. So that led me to a 
long-term internship uh, at Camp Hill Prison in Pennsylvania, which is the diagnostic and classification prison. So if you're going into a pr the prison system, which means in Pennsylvania that you're serving over uh, or two years or more, um, you have to be classified. So you go to this prison that's near Harrisburg to be classified. Um, and, uh, and part of that, I worked in the psychology unit for a semester um, doing anything that they wanted me to, um, which which turned out to be uh, quite an experience um, that started with me administering psychological testing and IQ testing to uh, in about 50 inmates a day. So it was group testing environment. Uh, so I would give them an IQ test and I, I, as a tangent from this, you would be able to see, because I would grade a lot of them too, uh, the people that sat in the front tended to have much higher IQs than people that sat in the back, not due to any type of intellectual ability, but more like more than they've been alone for about a week. They're finally in an open environment where they're able to chat with other people. So they're not really paying attention to my, this 20 year old's directions <laughs> in front of them. They're more interested in chatting with one another. Um, but so during that time, I had quite an experience um, learning about people and meeting people that were incarcerated. And uh, just one day and a situation really resonated with me where um, I would also do intake interviews, one-on-one -on -one interviews with people to, as they're coming in to learn about any mental health related issues, class, any, anything that might come up that might impact where they should be housed or go to their home, home jail or home prison as, as, as they call it. Um, and there was a guy who, had a long rap sheet of, I forget what the terminology was, but it was something along the lines of like a failure to register. Uh, and I asked him about it and I said, what's, what's going on with this, uh, with, with all of these charges? And he says, well, he is, and this is all, I couldn't corroborate all of it, but uh, he said, I'm a registered sex offender. And based on uh, I have to register when I get out based on where my parents live, family, friends, I can't go and live with them. So what he said is he would max out, not have anywhere to go and get quickly picked up again for a failure to register, which is an automatic one to two year sentence. Um, again, I don't have that corroborated. So I now know that there are services for people like this in Pennsylvania. But at the time I thought, whoa, what happens to people when they get out of prison? Because this seems like a crazy revolving door. Um, so then uh, that kind of opened my eyes and I went back to school and wrote a paper and found this was probably about 2006, 2007-ish, uh, which is right when reentry research started becoming a big thing. Um, so tra uh, Jeremy Travis's book came out, John Peter Silliot's book came out right around that time. And uh, I thought, wow, this is really fascinating. I really, I'm really interested in this. Um, so then, I know that was a long, <laughs> that was a long story, but uh, then when I went on to my master's, I moved up to New York City and went to John Jay College of Criminal Justice, where they have a prisoner reentry institute, um, and I was able to work for them as an intern and then as a work study uh, the, for the time that I was there, and I got, I was very fascinated in the research side, so what they were is kind of, they, at, the, at least at that point, was kind of a liaison to the uh, practitioners and people that are um, doing the research to try to get them in touch in a kind of digestible matter. Um, and so I, uh, I was studying 
psychology, thought I was going to go on and be a clinical psychologist and found that that wasn't quite my calling. I started uh, as part of a research project. We were doing, I was doing anger management therapy on stalking offenders and found that I was just taking the work home with me, overthinking it, and really wasn't getting the fulfillment that I wanted and really loved the research side. So I decided to go to um, a PhD program for criminology instead of psychology. And where I decided to go was in very, very rural Western Pennsylvania, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Um, and I found when I got there that uh, kind of an eye-opening moment of, I know what is happening, what the major challenges are for re-entry in urban areas, because that's where most of the research is, but what happens when someone's coming back to a place like Indiana, Pennsylvania? And that kind of opened my eyes started looking around. There's a couple few and proud people that are doing rural research uh, at that time. So I had reached out to them. There's about three that were doing re-entry research. So I got to meet them and build a little bit of a social network that uh, we all still um, see each other at conferences from, from time to time. And uh, that kind of started this, this uh, idea of you know what, what are the challenges that somebody faces and how might they be different from somebody going back to an urban area because we know what we know the research is, is full of information about the challenges of reentry to urban areas but uh there is still a sizable rural population in this country it's not that big but there are likely challenges that might be different than somebody going back to an urban area so you have like uh, uh what it sounds like a long history of um, working with justice involved populations that it kind of extends back maybe to, you know, early 20s some, and that's, it's just kind of, it's shifted a little bit, but now you're in this area of rural reentry is what you're interested in. Yeah. And reentry in general, definitely rural is a big component of it. Um, I even here in, in Colorado, I work with a couple of reentry programs. I do some evaluation research. Uh, I work, I had, done a, a project for the uh, for a community corrections board kind of coming up with a structured decision making tool to help them identify uh, this is with some colleagues uh, help them identify what more instead of going with gut feelings why somebody should be let out into a halfway house from prison on parole um, more of structuring their decisions to uh, make it a little more fair and at least have feedback for them of why they might not get out. Right. Yes. Okay. I like that. Um, so thinking about, you know, rural and what that means, um, because when I think about rural, I'm, I'm from Arkansas, which is a rural state, but the city that I'm from is not necessarily a rural city. So what, what does that mean when you say rural areas? Yeah, no, it's, it's a fascinating topic because rural is one of those things like you know it when you see it you're driving out of a city you realize i haven't seen anybody in a while this feels like a rural area there's a lot of farmland it's kind of a feeling more than uh to to an individual subjectively than uh something that we can easily grasp and define so there have been plenty of ways that we try to define what is rural and what is urban um, a lot of the standard measures, U.S. Census Bureau, there is the um, uh, the Office of 
let's see, it's the, uh, sorry, I have these, the, the Office of Management and Budget breaks things down by county level. Census Bureau breaks things down into, again, usually starting with metropolitan areas and working its way out. Um, the Department of Agriculture uh, has its own definition, breaking down kind of this rural and urban continuum based on what are called Beetle Codes. Uh, but usually what happens is you start with an urban center and the further you get out, the more rural it is. But that doesn't really work out so well, um, especially from like a county level breakdown. Some of the research that I did in Pennsylvania, for instance, um, they have a pretty convenient definition because they have a center for rural Pennsylvania. Um, so that's a, a state organization that looks into rural issues, which I haven't seen in that many other states. So I, I find that I find fascinating, but also because I was doing research in Pennsylvania, pretty convenient. And how they break down rural is based on um, population density at a county level. And that works in some ways, because if you're from Philadelphia, you just feel like everything outside of Philadelphia until you get to Pittsburgh is rural. Um, but if you're from you know, any of the smaller cities that are more central, like there are cities called Altoona, there are cities called, and of course there's Harrisburg, there's uh, Scranton. Those places are still, you know, quote unquote cities by definition, but don't feel like a city if your reference point is Philadelphia, New York City, LA. Um, so it's still subjective <laughs> to you in a way, but how Pennsylvania breaks down rural uh, is they take, it's all based on population density. So they look at the population density of the whole state, which comes down to, I think something like, at least when I was doing the research, I think it was like 284 people per square mile. And that's the threshold. So they look at every, each county and any county with a population density of less than 284 uh, is considered a rural county and any more is considered an urban county. Um, and so that works conceptually. It at least gives us a starting point, but there's some flaws with that. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Pennsylvania, but uh, one county in particular, Lancaster County, um, Lancaster, Pennsylvania is a tourist spot for an interesting reason, and it's because it's got a large Amish population, which the Amish are almost quintessential rural when we think of people that ride around in horse and buggies, um, do not believe in electricity or use electricity most of the time. Um, that is kind of the archetype of rural living. And they are highly concentrated in Lancaster County, but Lancaster also has is a city in small city in Pennsylvania. So therefore that county turns into a urban county. So uh, you're in the city of Lancaster, which is still a pretty small city, but you go a mile outside and all of a sudden there, no one's got electricity and you're, you're on a highway along with horse and buggies. Um, so I, I would consider that pretty rural. So at the county level, it's pretty tough. Even here in, I'm, I live in Boulder County, in uh, in Colorado, which you know the city of Boulder, I live in a city called Longmont. Um, both have over a hundred thousand people, so they are you know, small cities. But if I'm riding my bike two miles north of here, I'm in the middle of nowhere, rural farms, and it does feel very rural. But does that constitute as rural? How do we break that down? And when do we decide when we've gotten from an urban area to a rural area? And a lot of times that's different. It's 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 similar to um, just any type of neighborhood, even related research. How do we how do we know where when one neighborhood begins and the next stops? Uh, we like to break things down by neighborhoods, and it's very difficult because we like to rely on official data because it's it's easy. It's there, but uh, but overall. 
when it comes to rural and what is rural, I mean, there's, there's so much, there's so many differences, even when it comes to what is rural Colorado uh, versus, you know, rural Arkansas, rural Maine, rural Louisiana. Um, there's different fields. Even in Colorado, there's rural mountain Colorado versus rural plains in Colorado. So it, uh, so it's, it's, it's different cultures. It's different people. It's different feelings. Um, all are real, all are legitimate, all are full of people living their lives, doing wonderful things. But uh, when we try to have conversations about what is rural, a lot of times we just like to grasp onto something easy to throw it into some sort of equation or model to look at differences between uh, what is rural and urban. Um, but uh, how we define it is very important. And complex. <laughs> More complex than you probably thought when you yeah. started. Yeah, definitely because I think my definition has always been based on the feeling of what you described at first. And I'm thinking about, I'm thinking back to um, the places that I have lived since I left Arkansas, Kentucky, and now Southern Illinois, less than 20,000 people. That, that sounds pretty rural to me. Um, um, That's what I'm, that's what I was thinking. Um, And if you ask somebody that maybe has grown up in New York city, spent their whole life in New York city, anywhere might be rural compared to that. So that, cause that's their reference point. But uh, yeah, then there are communities that are very rural, maybe mm-hmm. insulated communities. Um, you could take the Amish as an example, as uh, they they are uh, they don't believe they don't use electricity often. They don't drive cars often. Um, they uh, and they don't really work with outsiders as much as you know the, the rest of us would. Um, so that's the very other extreme of that. Yeah. Most most rural communities, um, you know, are still some were thriving towns at one point, uh, places mm-hmm. that people wanted to uh, be away from others, or that's where they grew up, that's where they have land, some might be multi-generational, and that has that has changed a little bit over, over time, uh, just the idea of um, kind of modernization overall, uh, when mm-hmm. you think of, you know, rural, off the beaten path, away from everyone, I mean, there's you know, we, we, we romanticize it a little bit with even now TV shows like Yellowstone and things like that um, <laughs> of, uh, you know, this wonderful rural community that people are always fighting for land over. Um, but uh, but a, a reality is a lot of people have been leaving certain rural areas due to lack of opportunity, economic opportunity, jobs, places to you know, settle things to do. Um, and, uh, it's not, it's not everywhere. You know, there's some places like the the mountain towns in Colorado and Montana and Idaho, they are booming because people want to move to those places due to recreation and things like that. But, you know, the rural areas in Pennsylvania or Eastern Colorado are experiencing more flight than growth. Okay. Um, so I know in your research, you have talked about this rural framework that has been used. Um, I don't know if it's just a rural framework that has been used primarily in reentry context, but could you talk to us a little bit about what that framework is? I think like how it's applied to reentry, I guess. Yeah, I think the, the rural framework is, is more of instead of 
instead of looking at a rural as just a quick little official variable to throw in to look at rural versus urban differences to uh, look at more of what it means to be rural, <laughs> what what all of the things that come with being rural. Um, so kind of taking a deeper dive, a deeper understanding. Um, and the field of, of criminology has taken some great strides in kind of the the field of rural criminology in the last couple of decades. Uh, our, our main um, organization, the, the American Society of Criminology, uh, about five years ago, started the uh, a division of rural criminology. Um, and it has it is pretty substantial of uh, the, the amount of rural researchers and younger rural researchers that are that are interested in this field, um, myself being one of them. But, uh, you know, I, I talked to new PhD students and um, newly minted assistant professors often, um, even some throughout throughout the world that are looking into this, this rural, these rural concepts. So it's, uh, it's, it's growing, it's fascinating. Um, but it's something, you know, we're, we're small, but we're a proud group. <laughs> you know, as you should be, as you should be. Um, okay, so I guess like going into, you know, that deeper understanding, um, can you talk to us about what are some of the challenges in these rural communities and how they may be different from, you know, urban communities? Yeah. So um, I think part because there's a couple of things that I think we should touch upon. Um, first, I mean, what with what is what are some of the characteristics with rural communities? Um, again, a lot of them we're painting with a broad brush here because there's it's very heterogeneous communities, heterogeneous groups, different. Like we mentioned, there are lar large differences between, you know, rural Eastern Colorado versus, you know, rural Maine, Arkansas and whatnot. But uh, a lot of, and I'll, I'll mention mostly with a lot of my research was in Western rural Pennsylvania. Um, and some of the characteristics there were a, uh, a lot of, relying on a lot of what would be art agricultural related economies um, changing demographics in, in terms of what what job opportunities were there versus what was not a lot of you know factories a lot of uh, manufacturing um, corporations have left a lot of the, these areas um, so due to some of the issues with that, uh, there are not a lot of jobs, not a lot of different types of jobs. Um, there, the, the opio opioid epidemic hit some of these places harder than at least earlier on than some of the other areas. Um, because when, and this is some of the things that, that uh, some of the, some of what has come out of my research is when these, kind of these areas that are, you know, sometimes called the Rust Belt, um, what were based with had large manufacturing jobs had since gone away. Um, a lot of those people stayed. And when they couldn't get jobs, drug markets, in some cases became jobs. Um, Self-medication, because a lot of them do not have medical care. Um, they might have mental health related issues, which we'll get into when it comes to some of the reentry related problems. Uh, and if they can't get access to mental health care, they might self-medicate with drugs or alcohol. 
Um, some of these places are isolated. So there are um, groups of people that might have their own social norms, their own culture, and might that culture might be um, and some research, uh, Walter DeCastoretti has a lot of research that he does on um, domestic violence or violence against women in, in rural areas and found that in a lot of cases it could be, it's likely going to be higher. Now, a lot of that is still very underreported, but uh, what he, he was able to get access to um, participants through, through um, surveys and uh, and uh, interviews and, and, and whatnot, and found that uh, there are some, what he found in an interesting study is some risk factors for, um, for violence against women and families. Um, and some of these factors were higher rates of gun ownership, membership in a, what they call it a sexist all-male group, um, separation or divorce, natural disasters, male hunting subcultures, kind of a good old boy network that might include criminal justice officials, high use of substance abuse, um, natural resource booms. So what you see in a lot of rural areas are kind of uh, soft economies that might be based on one thing. There might be a boom in um, natural gas. So that drives up a lot of jobs, brings a lot of outsiders in, which can negatively impact the crime rate in, in that area if you have a lot more transient people um, coming coming through. But uh, some of these risk factors um, were associated with higher levels of male to female interpersonal violence in rural and remote communities. Um, so other things, I mentioned the opioid epidemic. Um, and substance abuse related issues, the, the remoteness of these areas tend to increase the burden of alcohol and other drug use. Um, so the more remote you are, the higher levels of drug and alcohol abuse there could be. Um, that might be due to proximity, culture, things to do, just there's not a lot of activities elsewhere to do. Um, so, uh, or self-medication for other, other, uh, other issues as well. So what you described there are just so far just characteristics of an already rural community, right? Yeah. So we already he just went through the characteristics. So you take those characteristics and you put somebody who is recently released from incarceration, uh, jail or prison. What does that mean for them? Yeah. So a lot of the issues with reentry in rural areas are not that different the challenges that they're facing are not that different than if you're going to an urban area. So some of the, the main uh, components that usually come up in conversations about reentry are employment, housing, substance abuse, treatment, uh, mental health related treatment, things related to collateral consequences. Um, a lot of those are still there. They just might manifest themselves differently or be a exacerbated challenge based on um, the fact that there's not a lot of resources around. So, uh, if you're coming back to a rural area, employment, there's just not a lot of opportunities overall. You know, if you go back to a city, yes, you, you, there, are, there are challenges, there are struggles, there are um, a lot of employers that are not going to give you the time of day if you are, if you are justice involved and have a criminal record. Um, but in rural areas, there's just not a lot of options. Um, I have as when I teach my corrections class to my to my undergrads, I have them do a project where I give them scenarios of put them in the shoes of somebody that is being released to areas in Colorado. Um, so I give them a whole 
basically a, a little write-up of this is who you are, this is what you were in for, this is how long you're in, these are the things that you need to do, and you're going back to this community, do, the, do this. And I tell them, pretend you're this person, find these resources, you need to get a job. I want you to call places and say, are you hiring? Will you hire somebody with my criminal record? Where are you going to live? And put a budget together and see if they can make it work. Um, so I have about if the class is big enough, I have 10 groups and some go to really rural, rural areas and some go to the urban areas throughout, throughout Colorado. And uh, um, it's amazing how well the students do, but granted they have access to the internet. They are able to find, uh, have, they're, they're able to uh, have a lot more resources and time than somebody that might be, you know, let out of a prison, let off the bus, a bus and go. But um, what I have them do is reflect upon different types of opportunities that they would have. And those some that are going to rural areas, the jobs that are available are maybe at a seven, the one 7-Eleven that's down in the area, that's in the area that say, when they call, yes, we do hire, but that doesn't mean that they're actually going to when, when, uh, if you were in that position. Um, so uh, overall, um, employment opportunities just tend to be lacking. What I have found through talking to, uh, especially in areas that have like a boom for oil and gas, um, they do hire often people with criminal records, but you need to stay clean and you need to be able to leave the state. And a lot of times these people are on parole probation and that's one of the things they might not be able to leave the county, let alone the state. Um, and after, after they get out. So that restricts their opportunities. I, I met a woman once in Pennsylvania who, um, we, I, I run a, this, a program where we, me and some volunteers, student volunteers go into jails and record um, incarcerated parents reading children's books to their kids. And we do an interview with them um, after the fact, knowing about trying to understand a little more about um, their relationships with their children and how they can try to build and maintain these social bonds. Um, so that lets me get to know some of these individuals really well. Um, and one time I was doing this back in Pennsylvania and I met a woman who could not get a job and actually was, what she says, she was violated. That's the reason that she was there for violating our conditions of um, county level uh, parole by not having a job and, or sorry, having a job, but her job was that she was working over the county line in another county and at a restaurant that served alcohol. So she said it was the only job that she could get in that area. And part of her condition was she's not allowed to work anywhere that serves alcohol, because I think that was a problem with her original offense. So she was back in jail. Um, and again, th this is all like, not corroborated with official statistics, but all through what she was telling me. Um, she was in jail because she had a job, basically. <laughs> yeah, and I, my mind tells me so much, but it's just barriers. Yeah. You know, there, there's, there's so many of them, and um, you would think that the focus would be, okay, I have a job. Um, yeah. Granted, there's some, there's some concerns uh, there, but I have a job but because it's across the county line, because of this condition, and so many conditions. Yeah. So, and it's like, I, are, they all, are they all necessary? And again, for, I, I'm going with anecdotes, but there's another story that still resonates with me from back in Pennsylvania. Um, it, this was an individual who served 
16 years out of a 30 year sentence. Um, when he was a kid, he did something. I don't know exactly what the offense was, but he was paroled. Once he got paroled, got finished his degree, got a master's, was working as a teacher at a community college, working for a bank, had a new wife, children, house payment, cars. Um, one day he gets in an argument with his wife and instead of you know staying home, he decides to leave that situation, which is something that a lot of people would say is the right thing to do. You don't want to stay around and escalate a situation. If you're getting very angry, it's sometimes you just need to walk away. Um, he went and stayed at his adult daughter's on his adult daughter's couch for that night. Um, according to him, word got back to his parole officer that he broke curfew. And he was at this time point in, in Pennsylvania, he was considered a technical parole violator, which was sent to um, instead of going back to prison, they were sent to county jails. That's how I saw him as he was in this county jail in rural Western Pennsylvania, two plus hours outside of Pittsburgh, um, not near his family, not near his home for automatic six month uh, violation. Um, I always ask my students when we talk about this case, like, what does it mean to be successfully rehabilitated? Because every single metric that I would say uh, he probably hit, even the fact that the reason why he left that night in an argument was was for uh, a pro-social reason. Um, so he ended up in this jail instead of, you know, in prison and jail, instead of the, the prison, which could be a better thing, but he wasn't close to home. Uh, he was still two hours away. So it's not like family could come and visit him often. Uh, he lost his job, of course, because six months is not, you're not, they're not going to keep his job. The the pressure then went on his family, his wife to now step up, to keep up with the house payments, keep up with the car payments. And they were underwater because of that. Um, so all of these things, because of one situation that most of us would have done and he got caught up in the system by somebody, by a off by a parole officer that didn't have, didn't give him a lot of leeway, it seems. Um, and ended, ended up, basically back from to square one once he's out. So uh, yeah, so those are, I, this was a long way of saying we were still in employment <laughs> in rural areas. Um, employment definitely is one of the major challenges, just like it is in urban areas, but there's just lack of employment, diversity of employment, places that you could um, work for. Um, housing, of course, just lack of housing overall. There's fewer um, shelters. There's fewer Section 8 related housing that um, individuals lower income might be able to apply for to get into. Uh, so a lot of times, um, you have to go live with family members, which was what our criminal justice system kind of assumes that you're going to do in most cases is go live with a family member or friend. Um, but that's not always a possibility. Um, so private renters tend to ask criminal history questions. If, they're, if you're a private renter, you're likely not going to rent to people with criminal histories if you have that choice and a lot of them prefer not to. Um, and uh, if they end up going back to their home, maybe to staying with a friend, um, if they're in any type of treatment, one of the fundamental components of a lot of treatment programs that they would have access to is to uh, try to avoid old people's places things. You can't do that if you don't have any other options. Uh, so that becomes an issue. Um, one thing in my research that came out often was uh, issues with mental health care and substance abuse treatment. Um, for mental health care, uh, we, we know that a lot of people that are in jails and prisons 
have underlying mental health conditions. A lot of them might be untreated, self-treated in negative ways. Um, and they might get into, in a jail, start to actually get mental health medication. Um, in my research in Pennsylvania, what we found was that once they leave jail, they were only given three days of medication. And all of the, as part of my research, what I did was talk to uh, current inmates, but another group of people that I talked to were kind of people that did reentry services. So there weren't a lot of reentry programs in rural areas, um, but there were people that did by all definitions, take run a program that would be considered reentry by most of our standards. Um, so uh, most of the mental health related fields, there was in one three county radius, there was one low income mental health facility and they had a three to four week waiting list to see somebody um, to re-up on those medications. So if you have three days of medication, can't see anybody to get more medication for three weeks. At that point, medication isn't something, mental health medication isn't something that you can just turn off and turn on. Um, it's something that needs to build. And if it comes down, if you come down off of that medication, and in some cases, you might be predisposed to some of the risk factors that made you get you in trouble, get them in trouble in the first place. Um, so that that's something that definitely struck me as a relatively easy fix. Some case management could fix that from, from the inside, scheduling appointments to the outside, give longer medication. Um, substance abuse treatment was something that also came up. Now there was a couple of treatment programs in these rural areas, but a lot of them through talking to some of the, um, some of the justice involved individuals, uh, they might have gone through it didn't work for them, but there's not a lot of options. So in a urban area, maybe you have, you know, when we, we talk about treatment, part of that is responsivity, right? How well are you working with your clinician? Um, those of us that have private health insurance can shop around. If we don't like a counselor that we're working with, we can maybe go see somebody else. Um, if you don't have those options or there's not a lot of options in town, you're working with the same person. And maybe the last time you wronged them or they felt like you wronged them and they don't like you or you don't think that they like you. So you're, not, you're already not starting off at a good place in terms of a therapeutic treatment relationship. Um, so a lot of individuals that I, that I met with said that they went to this one place in this county, there's two clinicians that worked there and they don't like them. So they don't want to go back. And even though I've talked to those clinicians and they're, I'm sure they're great people, they would probably love to welcome that person back, but that's the perception that, that this individual had. Um, so if there's not a lot of opportunity there or differences in, in, in treatment. Um, so you might, so a lot of places, of course, they have AA and NA type programs, um, but also more structured tr drug treatment or substance abuse and alcohol treatment as well. Um, but there's just fewer, much fewer of those to go around. Um, and that just kind of ties into the overall lack of programming. So a lot of places and in, in the counties that I was looking at, there was actually one wraparound reentry program in one prison, in one jail. Um, they call it Butler County Prison, but uh, it's, a, it's a county jail. And uh, it was pretty innovative and um, strong and fascinating that they had that in this pretty rural area. Um, but the other counties that I looked at did not really have anything. It was more of an informal network of people that they would touch base with if you based on individual needs. 
Um, and some other research shows that, uh, yes, there might be programs available. Those programs are likely mental health substance abuse programs in the community, but there aren't a lot of programs that address criminogenic needs that, um, that, that, that incarcerated individuals might be experiencing. Uh, and the, the other kind of inverse and interesting component about rural areas, because I know I'm talking about a lot of bad things, but one thing that could actually improve um, in some people, in some cases, are the idea of uh, this concept called acquaintance density. So in rural areas, a lot, some rural areas, you tend to know your neighbors, you tend to know people that live close to you, you tend to get along with them, maybe, maybe not, but uh, you have a reputation for better or worse <laughs> in, in those areas. So if you are somebody that is seen from the community as I just, you just messed up. Otherwise you're a good kid. Sure. I'll give you a job. You can come and, and do this for, for my company. Um, and that could be beneficial that uh, in, in, in a rural area, but it could also be a double-edged sword and others. If you come from a quote unquote bad family and you know, you're, uncle, your dad were, were no good. So therefore we just assume self-fulfilling prophecy. We assume, look at, look at what you did. Um, so we're not going to give you a chance as well. So in some cases it could be beneficial, but other cases, maybe not. Yeah. It sounds like, I think what you said earlier is a good summary of it that, you know, the challenges are generally the same, but exacerbated. Um, it's to uh, a very different extent because of the limited resources um, that are available and the limited opportunities that are available um, there. Because like you said, you just listed off some of the very key and essential things that we talk about when we talk about reentry. Um, I will, I do want to ask one question of, in just my research and you know, hearsay of what people say in rural communities. I've also heard that transportation is a relatively big challenge in rural communities. What is your take or perspective on that particular um, barrier or resource? Yeah, for sure. That is, that's one of the ones that I, I missed. Um, but usually in rural areas, there's a large lack of public transportation. If there are any, it might be a bus that comes in and out of a town. If, if not, uh, it, you might, you would have to rely on family, friends, your own car. So that brings a challenge to, to people because if you're in a rural area, say even far away from a lot of the services in most counties or in, you know, the county seats, the area, the, the kind of headquarters of, of most counties. So if you're in a small town or just on the outskirts, you're likely not going to get there maybe by even riding a bike, <laughs> uh, walking. So you need a ride. And in a lot of cases, some sometimes you're, if you had been charged with drugs or alcohol, you might have lost your license. Um, so that brings a, a moral dilemma to you of, I need to get to this treatment. I need to get to my parole or probation appointment. I don't have a ride, so I either have to miss it or I have to drive without my license <laughs> and borrow a car to do so. Uh, and I've I had anecdotally individuals say, uh, come tell me tell me stories about that as well. So uh, in in a lot of places, uh, transportation, of course, in rural areas is an issue that might not have any public transportation. There um, there might not be um, access to individuals that can get you from one place to another, and. Uh, 
but an, an interesting thing that I was working with a, a group, a, a sheriff and a reentry coordinator in a, a rural eastern Colorado county um, a couple of years ago it was a project that we were about to set up, but then um, and this could this could lead to a whole nother discussion about just politics in rural jails. Um, the sheriff, sheriffs here in Colorado run the run the jails. The sheriff lost re-election due to a more hardliner lock them up, throw away the key uh, individual who decided he didn't want any type of re-entry services in his small rural jail anymore. Um, so I we ended up not pursuing that research. But through talking with their re-entry coordinator, um, I learned, which I was really looking forward to learning more about, but in these this rural county in eastern Colorado, there was an informal, because they don't have you know Uber, they don't have Lyft. Um, so what they had was kind of an informal taxi service based on a bunch of people that were all just as involved that would get them to appointments up to the closest place was up to uh, near Sterling, which is where a large prison is um, in, in, in Northeast Colorado. And I wanted to learn more about this because I found that fascinating. What makes this informal <laughs> culture? How do they keep in touch? How do you get involved in it? Um, but uh, but alas, I, I lost that opportunity due to politics in this <laughs> in the in, in the in the state. Uh, yeah, politics will do that for sure. I will say when I lived in uh, Kentucky, I lived in the western region. There was a um, the local parole office there had somewhat of a it wasn't an informal taxi service because it was in collaboration with the parole office but they had a taxi service where uh, the individuals that were on parole there they could sign up for to request a car to oh, come okay. and pick them up take them to work um, granted they had to sign up like 24 hours before because somebody somebody had to know um and they could only go to like work, I think the grocery store um, and something else, but, you know, to do whatever they needed to do. And I thought that was pretty interesting because like you're saying, like, I just, like I said, I had learned that transportation was a really big thing. And in like you just described, uh, if transportation is the issue, like the first issue, the rest of them are going to be issues as well too um and i just thought that was pretty interesting that they had a service like that um and i wish more places you know adopted that i don't know if people even know about that like yeah. have they even thought about it because <laughs> when in when i was in western pennsylvania um one of the the counties they did have a bus system but where the more rural parts of the county you have to walk to the bus stop then there might be one or a bus you know, if you need to get to an afternoon appointment in the county seat for, say, probation or parole, you take the bus early in the morning, you get there for the afternoon, then you have to wait the rest of the day, and then yeah. you get it back. So that's a whole day out of your life that is gone for an appointment. We know through, you know, the research for uh, even urban areas, it's difficult to try to convince your boss to I always need, you know, one time a month two to two 30 in the afternoon off in order to go to an appointment. And that appointment, you know, usually is might be probation or parole, but you don't want to, a lot of people don't want to tell their employers about that because that's going to mark them and maybe mm -hmm. make them less likely to get the job in the end. So uh, if you have to take a whole day off 
on let's say every other Wednesday in order just to get up to town. Um, that's wages that you don't have. So it further impedes you being able to maybe get a car <laughs> later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also if you're an, an employee, that's tougher an employer who might have a lot of other options because there's a lot of yeah. people that need work in, in some of these rural areas. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I, you know, and it makes me think of like, you know, it could be just like we transport individuals with uh, disabilities. Um, yeah. There could be services for people who are formerly incarcerated and need to go to work or, you know, it, it's, I know my parents are kind of in that business. Um, and, and, you know, I'm just, if they have an appointment, all they, all they do is they call and say, Hey, I have an appointment at this time. And, the driver will be okay. Here's your. I'll pick you up at this time. Drop you off, and you know, um, yeah. things could just be that simple too. Um, apply it in different places. Um, so I think that's a pretty cool idea there. Um, somebody will grab it. <laughs> yeah, and they'll, they'll do something with it. Hopefully, and that's something else that I found throughout talking to you know, the practitioners or the, the, the reentry service people in, in these rural areas is there's a lot of programs that popped up for a couple of years, but then faded away because they couldn't get funding or they couldn't get volunteers to do it. Um, there was one program that worked to get people set up with uh, substance abuse, mental health related treatment, drive them around in those immediate times uh when they get out uh, that's something that even here in, in colorado and in boulder county there's a there's an organization that does that as well um that's really important those those immediate needs that first 72 hours is very important for your trajectory for successful reentry. um and a lot of times that's really overlooked at a lot of jails or prisons because it's just more of like all right here's where the here's when we can come and pick you up and here's when we have you processed. So from a jail perspective, sometimes, you know, you, you you hear stories of people that were arrested in the summer and flip-flops and shorts, and that's the clothing that they're given in the winter and to, to leave in at like two o'clock in the morning without, and those are all things that could be planning. That's just not really taking into account the, the dignity of the people that they're, that they're dealing with. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and I guess, you know, we're here, I want to ask you this, because I know People are going to wonder, why are we even talking about rural communities? Like, why is this even important to even consider um, when we're thinking about the work that we're trying to do and the change that we're trying to make? Yeah, it's a a good question. I mean, if you the majority of the United States is rural, (laughs) we do know that Um, not the majority of people, about uh, 13% or 14% of the of the population of the U.S., you know, lives in quote unquote rural areas, uh, but it's still about f- around 50 million people. Um, so they are still people that have issues, that have needs. And if we don't, if we negate them their and their needs and the challenges that they face, they're likely just going to continue to get into the revolving door of, of, of prison, of the criminal justice system. And, uh, you know, I, I, to the, I know most of the people on that listen to this podcast will of course be on board with that, but to the lay people out there that aren't and don't necessarily have the compassion for people, for, for, uh, justice involved individuals, uh, I always break it down by a money factor. Do you want to keep paying for these people to be in prisons when, instead of giving them opportunities to be, you know, contributors to the tax base instead of just 
taking in your taxpayer money. And usually if you phrase it like that to some people, they say, okay, yeah, I guess that does make sense. Um, but, uh, you know, most of the people that I have interacted with are not, you know, quote unquote, bad people per se. They're just people that have made mistakes, um, been caught up in bad situations and are having a tough go of getting out of it. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, that rings their ears when you talk about money and the amount of money and when people see how much money we're really contributing um to just incarceration in general um and how the benefits of we uh, a lot of that money to other places like reentry and rehabilitation initiatives um so i think that's very important and i think that's something for people to really understand and you know and in understanding that, it's also trying to understand what we can do at a community level. I know that there are obviously policies that need to be changed, um, but what can we do at a community level um, to support um, better advocate in rural communities, uh, support the residents that are returning there from incarceration? What are your, do you have any ideas or thoughts there? Yeah, there are a couple of things that have come out of uh, the, the large research project that I did. Um, one of the things that we looked that I looked at was perceptions from cur current inmates that have been through the reentry process before, but also um, in Pennsylvania county level probation and parole officers. So in Pennsylvania, uh, these wouldn't be through the, the state; they would be at a county level, still working for the court system. Um, but how Pennsylvania works is it's, uh, you know, they, they, they work under indeterminate sentencing. So you're given a minimum and maximum. Uh, usually, if it's anywhere under two years, you're sent serving that time in a jail and you're still under the jurisdiction of the, the county level um, individuals. So uh, if you hit that minimum, usually you are, quote unquote, paroled. Now, it's different than parole in a lot of other states where they have the state parole board that has parole officers. This would be still at the county level, basically probation officers also serving as what we call parole officers. Um, so I, long story short, I, I, I surveyed a group of the, them and a group of a group of current inmates, and I asked them what the major challenges were. It was about forty-three items, um, and we ranked them all. We looked at differences between them and the the current inmates. What they saw as the most challenging factors tended to be kind of income structural related factors. So uh, things like lack of jobs, employment opportunities, um, low wages ability to pay fees or court fines, um, can't return to their former job, lack of transportation, all of those things rang out as major issues. And they tended to be structural things that were out of their control, where the probation slash parole officers, what they viewed was a lot of personal factors. So yes, drug and alcohol abuse, which came rang out for both, but associating with the wrong peers, lack of motivation, poor work ethic, uh, blaming others or failing to take responsibility, things that were in their role that they're saying, you need to just do this. And so the there's a, there's a large disconnect there from the people that are trying to better themselves, get opportunities, are saying, no, you're not listening to me. There are structural things that, that need to be changed. And the officers are saying, no, more, you know, for lack of a better term, phrase, you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and figure this stuff out. It's all internal. So that disconnect there, I'd say the bigger, biggest thing is to make them aware, make the officers, case managers aware of, of, uh, 
of these issues, inform them of the offender's perspective, the, the justice involved individual's perspective, um, and note, make them know about the multiple obstacles that they're facing outside of their agency. Because if you are a um, probation or parole officer, you know, you see, you have likely have a large caseload, you see a whole bunch of people and you start to kind of come up with mental heuristics about them. You start to see them as cases instead of individuals. Um, Carol Heimer uh, wrote a paper, it wasn't about criminal justice, but it was, um, I think about medical field about how when you're constantly seeing people come through, you don't really see them as individuals, you see them as cases. Um, and that's similar to this is that you would view individuals that are on probation as uh, you're very similar to this last person that I saw. So I'm gonna treat you like this last person where we as individuals, we wanna be treated as individuals. When you go to a doctor, you wanna say, no, this is all of the things that I have experienced. I want you to listen to me and pay attention to me. It's similar in a, in a classroom. If you have something that comes up in your life and you need to tell your professor that this situation came up, um, you want them to listen to the whole thing. You want them to treat you as an individual where if you are a doctor, if you are a professor, you heard these maybe excuses or, or, or cases often. So you start to clump them together as kind of a, a mental shortcut or a heuristic. So making sure that um, people are aware of this disconnect between them, know of the different services, know all, all that are out there, all of the issues that might be out there. Um, from a community standpoint, um, a lot of the small programs that I have heard of that I have seen, a lot of them tend to fizzle out after, over time because then they lose volunteers or funding. Um, so funding for a lot of programs, we know both in urban and rural areas tend to be lacking. Um, so access to funding, access to people that are willing to do the work um, because even when there is funding, it's usually not a lot. So you have to have people with big hearts and a lot of time on their hand to, to devote themselves to this. Um, so that's it in, in a nutshell. And some of the things like case management, of course, for the mental health related issues, that, that gap in care and uh, medication, that's something that could just be done with kind of in-reach um, case management when people are know when they're getting out set them up with an appointment on the out, with an appointment on the outside. So there's small, definitely small things that can be done if people take the time, take the energy and, and care. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, are there any recommendations that you have for people that are wanting to learn more about rural communities? This could be media, books, um, re any type of resources. Uh, yeah, so let's see what I have in my I, there. This, fresh off the presses, there's this encyclopedia of rural crime that um, is an international perspective that uh, just came out. I think a couple months ago that looks at a whole lot of different rural issues and about each topic is about a page or two long that really could give you a a broad overview of some of the issues in in rural crime. Um, another something that some colleagues and I just wrote a chapter for was a, uh, if you're interested in doing research in on uh, rural related issues, there's a research methods book for rural criminologists that just came out edited by uh, Ralph Weisheit, Jessica Peterson, and uh, Arthur, and I'm probably going to ruin his name, I apologize for that, but uh, Pie Trials, it looks like, um, <laughs> and uh, that um, gives you a kind of a guide of how to, because rural communities are 
sometimes insular. So they're difficult for outsiders to come in and study or even know how to come in from the outside to study. So when you're working with a, an urban criminal justice, you know, it, it, either a court system, correction system, or police organization, uh, they might have a lot of people in urban areas, people that could help you, people that have dealt with data um, in rural areas, they don't get a lot of requests. They don't necessarily know how to pull that data for you. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're not in need of it or willing to work with researchers. It just, you need to frame, frame it well when you're reaching out to them to ask them for if they, if they need help or if they will work with you for, uh, for research. And there, there have been some strides recently, even in, you know, the, the realm of, of rural jails, um, the Vera Institute um, has given a lot of it, a lot of uh, attention to, to rural jails, because while the general incarceration rate had been falling, the rural jail incarceration rate has actually been going up um, in, in the last five to 10 years. And uh, part of that is due to contracts that prisons and urban jails have sending them out to rural areas. But uh, there might also be other things going on that uh, there's a couple of research teams throughout the US that are looking into rural jail related issues right now too. And we will definitely have to check those out and I'll make sure I link um, those books in the bottom. That way, if people are interested, they can go buy them. Um, and I'll also link some other additional resources there. But Dr. Ward, I do want to say thank you for all of your expertise, uh, all of your knowledge and, you know, sharing your experiences with us on here. Hopefully we were able to, you know, gain something from this, which I, there was a lot of information covered here. So I know that we did for sure. But I just want to say thank you. Uh, and we really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you. This is a wonderful podcast. Wonderful to meet you. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to continue to listen to episodes here on out. Well, look, we appreciate it. And as always, audience, if y'all are interested in learning more about Dr. Ward and his uh, research or um, the work that he does, I will make sure I link all of his professional information in the bottom of the description box, um, any additional resources to learning about rural communities in reentry, as well as if you're interested in just following more life and learning what we're doing as it pertains to reentry, you can follow us on Instagram at More Life, the reentry podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, just push the subscribe button. Um, thank you, and you all have a great day.